Welcome to episode three of Fact Versus Fiction. Again, I'm Nicole Huff. Sylvia Ellison. Um, and we are in chapter two. Yes, with C-Tech Ed Podcasts, and we're very excited to be reading this book and discussing it. Right. And Fact Versus Fiction has become a very interesting text. Like I said, I think earlier, I've had lots of people who, when they see me reading it, are interested to talk about it, mm-hmm. right? Um, this chapter really hits on the idea that fake news is not something new, yeah, right? And I was so fascinated that this has been going on through the course of history. She uses examples like Benjamin Franklin starting a fake newspaper, um, the idea of Mussolini and Hitler using propaganda to fuel their initiatives. So I think it's interesting that in the media right now, mm-hmm. it's taking such a huge swing of, oh my gosh, this is such a problem. And interesting that those are the examples. I think that we hear on the internet about how the Nazi propaganda and Hitler did this and burned books. And that is sort of common knowledge. But the Benjamin Franklin one is not. And those are sort of people on the opposite side, at least in this country, of like the villain and protagonist. We usually think of Benjamin Franklin as a good guy. And here he is creating an entirely fake newspaper, making it look real, giving it to credible people to pass around with entirely made up stories because he's afraid that we're going to sue for peace and settle and end a war. And he doesn't want that to happen before we fully have independence. Right. So his his ends, in his way, somewhat justified his means. That's what he thought. But right. could we have gotten are we to hope, Well, are we okay... Did it have a lasting impact on the culture? Again, the story that he made up is that uh, the British forces had a treaty or alliance with Native Americans and that therefore Native Americans had scalped like 700 colonists. Yeah, there's there's a lot. It's quite fascinating to, you know, this whole concept. Mm -hmm. Is Um, the viciousness of that story something that hurt the Native American population long into the future. And on the flip side of that coin, would we be where we are today had he not done that? So could we have reached independence a different way? And we'll never know. Right. Because this is where we're... I just, I think you're right. And I, the dichotomy there of it's happening on both sides. It's just Mm -hmm. not, it's not just villains Mm -hmm. that are creating quote unquote fake news. It's, Across the board. The one thing that I thought was very important here is that this book, I think, highlights the idea that our journalists have now put their credibility into question. You know, I think think it was, and I could be wrong, so please don't crucify me in comments later, but wasn't Dan Rather and a couple of other journalists who were removed from their position because the, the populace could never, could not trust them anymore, right? And I'm wondering if this idea of fake news, it, whether intentional or not, is causing a distrust between the people who are giving us the news and the American populace. And, and then in addition to that, is the purpose of journalism now, the purpose of news, to give us an unbiased report or to give us a, a perspective that will influence us? And that's interesting. 
both from Benjamin Franklin's notes, it also mentions in here that he discussed how maybe Rome wouldn't have fallen if they had had a free press that the senators could have manipulated. (laughs) 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 You know, ends justifying the means is not an excuse I'm okay with. Right. No matter what side you're on, because I don't think it's okay to manipulate the press for your own gain, especially well, intentionally. Right, because if you can do it for good, then that I, means you can also do it for evil. Right. And so if we, even if we wanted the good, I can't no. allow for the evil, which means we have to go straight down the line regardless. So. And what's wrong with just educating people about facts? Now, we did discuss last time that our own biases that we carry with us and our own preconceived notions often lead us to not believe facts. And let's tell you, our conversation led me, I use, I've used that conversation in my classroom now. Mm-hmm. I was talking through um, Sandra Cicerno's House on Mango Street, mm-hmm. and she says, my name is like the muddy color nine. And I totally didn't understand that until our conversation. And so I took a piece of paper, and I wrote a nine on it, but very curvy you know mm-hmm. like and I asked the boys who were sitting across the table for me I said what number did I write down and they said a six and I flipped it around I said I wrote a nine maybe that's why it's muddy mm-hmm. right and I think we talked last week about how our perspective has a bias and mm-hmm. sometimes those bias are intentional and sometimes they're not and sometimes they're, they're inherent and we don't know that they exist but just like flipping that number around and seeing mm-hmm. the other side like we talked about can lead us to different perspectives. I thought that was just an interesting way that this podcast has become relevant to the world in yes. a small seed. So in a small seed. Um, so we used Pardes last time. Mm-hmm. Which like secret reading practice are we using today? Havertha. This is our third spiritual practice in three episodes. We would like to introduce you guys to our common practices, and then we can delve further in them. So we started with Lectio Divina and looked at that four-step process. Last week, we looked at Pardes as another four-step process. Havrutha is also from the Jewish tradition and usually comes about when people are studying the Torah before Bar Mitzvah or Bat Mitzvah. So you are given a copy of a difficult sacred text in your religion, And yes, there is sort of a teacher of these classes, but the teacher is very much a guide or facilitator. You are given a partner to read with. You and your partner are then asked to look at the text, find places that don't make sense to you or that you have a question about. And then I read that spot to my partner. I ask my question and I am required to suppose or guess or postulate an answer. I then must give my partner a little bit of time to think and let my partner guess or postulate an answer as well. And then we discuss both of our answers and the truth is supposed to be between us. It is not the job of the teacher or guide leading the session to give you the right answer, it is up to the two of you because the Torah is supposed to be a living and breathing document and the meaning that you make from it is very much supposed to be personal. And I really love that. 
both that there's not a right answer, that the answer comes from multiple people, and that the more of a community you have reading a text, and the more you can complicate the text for each other, the more likely you are to come to a good full answer. And then also the fact that it is a personal meaning-making journey. So that is the process that we are going to use this week with a quote from chapter three, which is in the in the end of the section on page 21, just before the psychology of fake news. It says it is tempting to look at fake news as an exclusively 21st century phenomenon. Doing so also allows us to lay blame for the way it affects us at human beings at the foot of the technology, which is both unfair and unwise. The reasons why people concoct it and the reasons why we continue to believe it remain largely unchanged. And then down a little further, it says that political convictions lead us to lazy thinking. And really what's at play here is our innate desire for an easy answer. So with that quote, my question is, if this fake news phenomenon is something that has been around for hundreds of years, and that the reasons behind it are the fact that we all want easy answers, and that we tend towards this dichotomy in political conventions and lazy thinking, then how do we combat this? How do we as humans, for ourselves and for future generations as librarians and teachers, how do we figure out a way to get people to want to think beyond an easy answer? How do we get people to question? And really, we're asking them both to question everything and to believe us. So how do we walk that balance? I think my answer is that it is important to teach people to question, but that's not enough. I think that not only are we going to have to show, as we mentioned earlier, that people on multiple sides of an issue are using propaganda and fake news to their own benefit, I think we're going to have to show that there is a pattern of people who do this for personal and political gain that there are people who do this intentionally, and then also that there are people who do this just because of who they are and their own biases, uh, and they do it unintentionally as well, and maybe not for gain. But just showing that it exists, I don't think is gonna be enough. And I think my answer as to how we do this is, at least in part, to model by example that not only in lessons am I going to need to say, like, these are our sources. How do we check and see if these are accurate? Did Miss Huff provide you with good thinking here? How can we tell? I think I'm also going to have to encourage students in lessons that I'm teaching to ask me where I got my sources, to ask me if I'm right or wrong, to question what I'm saying. And I think that in my personal life, I'm going to need to model that, too. Here's what I'm sharing. Here's where I got it from. Here's how you can check if it's right. I've seen several friends on social media doing that. And I appreciate the ones who do. Even if I didn't initially agree with their point of view, I, I like when I see people 
citing the sources and explaining how they got their information so that you can check and see if their source is valid. That is my partial answer. However, I must also pause here and say, unfortunately, the middle part of my conversation with Ms. Ellison has become corrupted. I don't know why, but there's about 10 minutes of the conversation that has been lost, and so this episode is going to be a little bit shorter. Ms. Ellison did appreciate the idea that we need to question and that we need to model by example, and she does strive always to encourage her students to see that. We had a great conversation as well about how to get kids to do that, and she really liked the tools in the chapter as well, especially when we had the CRAAP method from the American Library Association, where we were teaching kids to ask, is it current? Is it relevant? Is it authoritative? Is it accurate? And what is its purpose? And that by leading kids through those questions more often when they're looking at research and starting early on, as well as doing that in a personal life, when you talk to people about their information, you could ask them these questions. She thought that that was a great tool and we both also worried about the stats in the chapter that talked about how our ability to teach students in social studies classrooms is getting lost, that students are spending less and less time in social studies curriculums and social studies classes that taught them to question sources and look at primary versus secondary and how things change. At this point, I'm going to pick back up with our conversation where we were discussing the CRAAP method. Thank you. So I think that it's interesting that using that technique is a way that we could combat this transference. But I also think that's interesting. At the end of the chapter, she says, we must accept that some of the tried and true methods we've always relied on to teach media literacy may lo- no longer be enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that I was listening, uh, I was reading online today in my Twitter, I have a, a person that I follow, his name is John Miller, his handle is MexUSAMX, M-E-X-U-S-M-X, and his handle is based on the idea that um, he taught in Mexico, he's now teaching in the U.S., and he's like a mix, and I, um, at least I'm projecting that's what his handle is. I remember his handle because of that. But he wrote today in response to a question that it's actually in response to a question that I spoke, I I wrote, and then several people responded. Uh, One person really is pushing the envelope, right? But his response was, anyone who ignores an intentional, well-designed lesson out of hand may need to check their bias and ask themselves why they aren't open to a strategy that can accomplish the academic objective in a way that is appealing to kids. I think that... um, Sometimes we're going to have to take a risk and set our ego aside in order to combat this problem. So regardless of whether or not I like the truth of the story or the truth of the numbers or the truth of the data, Mm -hmm. sometimes I have to set it aside, my feelings, Mm -hmm. to foster this idea of finding truth. I think that's why I like Havrutha for this, because the... The answer lies between us. Mm -hmm. So the answer doesn't necessarily mean truth. 
versus fact, right? But it definitely can lead us to an answer where we don't have to spread falsities, Mm -hmm. but that we can instead reach understanding. Yes. Right? And I also think that when we're talking about how do we combat this out in the world, especially with the confirmation bias that we talked about last time, I'm not sure that I'm going to get there by posting something on Facebook in general. I think I'm much more likely to get there one-on-one and face-to-face. And then as a teacher and as a librarian and as there are kids here, I definitely think we start with their acronym. Yes. Current, relevant, authoritative, uh-huh. accurate purpose. Mm-hmm. C-R-A-P. <laughs> yes. But as she says, that might not be enough. I also think we need to start looking with our students at what confirmation bias is and how to be more objective. Like Miss Griswold said, how do we follow thinking in order to find it, in order to find how somebody really is? How do we look at facts and stories and check sources and then say, I need to come to a conclusion later. This is sort of the opposite of the scientific method. And I wonder if we could talk to science teachers about Mm, it. In that, in the scientific method, they start with a question, make a hypothesis, test it, and then come to answers. And I wonder if what we need to do is start with a question, look at the research, design an experiment, come to a conclusion, and the hypothesis might need to be removed. I don't know if that's scientifically possible in the scientific method. Well, right, but I'm wondering, and, and I'm wondering if, can you really look at the research without the hypothesis? Or, or is what you're saying is the hypothesis creates a bias in us? Yes. So I agree. So if that's the premise that we're saying, then I think that we need to also look at our focus in education. So in, in the text, she says that um, since No Child Left Behind came through, mm-hmm. of elementary schools increased time for English language arts and math. 20% of middle schools increased time for English language arts and math. And 36% of schools decreased the time allotted to social studies. Which means we have spent so much effort on teaching kids how to read and how to compute that we've kind of, if I'm interpreting correctly, taken away their reason to read. They're taking away the joy of reading, taking away the knowledge that they need to learn as a result of reading. Well, and she says that the social studies classroom and the civics classroom is often the place where you look at civics and fake news and that every subject has written text but looks at it differently. And this Mm -hmm. is something you and I have looked at before, that in English we look at a text and say... What do I feel in it? What criticisms can we see in it? Reader response theory, Marxism, all of that. That in science, they're looking at what it proves or disproves and the facts in it. Math is looking at the numbers. Uh, Social studies is looking at who the author is, 
and what their bias is because history is written by the winners and is this a primary source or a secondary source where did we get the information how accurate is it what picture of the world does it build for us and how do we keep history from repeating itself let's learn lessons from the past if they're not doing that then we're not doing that as a society wow so wow um right i i can see that and maybe i need to get into more social studies classrooms and hear some more from social studies teachers but i fear that across the board not just in that discipline i fear that we're so focused on covering curriculum that we have lost track of those skills right of those intentions you know, I asked a science teacher one time after being in his classroom, um, what is the purpose of science? Why do kids have to take it? And he said that um, after much thought and contemplation, he came back and he said that science is the, the discipline of wonder, of curiosity. And I love this teacher, and he's turned out to be an excellent teacher because he listened to me, but I, and I wasn't <laughs> a, the best coach or mentor at the time, but I said, you're failing at that because this was a boring class. And it's typical of the, a lot of the classes I've seen. So he changed his things up, and he, he's an amazing teacher now. But when I asked him that question, I started asking myself, okay, if I'm going to ask a teacher why should a kid have to take science, then I need to ask why, should, why do they need to teach English? Or why, why should they be required to take four years of English? And I came to the conclusion that English is the art of communication. Mm-hmm. That, and, and this could help combat this problem. That as English teachers, my job is to teach students how to communicate verbally and in writing with intentionality, with truth, with clear explanation, with evidence. All of those pieces that make me sound credible, that make me sound professional, that make me sound like I have an idea worth sharing. Interesting, because I used to tell kids that English was and is the number one undergraduate major for lawyers because it teach you, teaches you to manipulate the language. Ah, see. I had a professor in college in speech writing all about manipulating the public. That's funny. <laughs> one of our assignments that I will never forget was that we had to write a speech. This was our persuasive speech. It was to be exactly 100 words. And every 10th word when we gave the speech in class, we did not say the word we clapped. And he was going to write down what the word should have been. And until his notes and our original speech matched exactly, we did not pass his class. Now here's the reasoning. If your audience gets to your conclusion before you do, then you've already convinced them. So you're gonna use creative and clever devices, things like, we need to increase the literacy skills for our students. There, you know, we cannot wait. We need literacy yesterday. We need literacy today. We need literacy tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yep. So you use some creative devices, but you get people saying it along and they leave with it and they believe it right. and internalize it. It is a manipulation. Yeah. So I'll be honest with you, I didn't stop at English, right? So I went to math. And through reflection, conversation, because I started college as a math major, I discovered that if science teaches wonder and curiosity, English teaches communication, math is the the art of problem solving. 
And problem solving means that I can make sense of a problem and persevere in solving it, which is standard mathematical practice number one. And so if, if that's math, then I went to history. Mm-hmm. And this is where I wanted to come back to history because you and I, I think with what you said, are very similar in what I came to an understanding mm-hmm. in our middle years where I didn't get to see you a lot. That history is the art of reflection, right? That history is how we make sense of what we've done mm-hmm. so that we can do things better. Reflection right? is so hard. It is. That's the thing as a teacher that is the hardest is to take an honest look at the lesson I taught and the work that kids did and decide where it went well, but also what its shortcomings were and in what ways I could change this to help students learn more. Right. So I think that when I look at my philosophy of education, I mean, we could go into so many other disciplines, world languages and uh, uh, CTE, which is career tech education. There's so many reasons for everything that we do. But if we are going to combat this fake news spread, we've got to combat human nature, right? Mm-hmm. So if our question, I'll go back to it, says, how do we combat this and how do we help others combat this idea of lazy thinking without sounding like you're condescending or yelling from the other side? Well, I'm going to start with, based on our conversation, I come back to that I still believe that we have to treat humans as humans. We have to understand that human nature drives us to certain things. But... When we talk specifically about the lazy thinking and the desire for an easy answer, I think that we have to get back to teaching reading across all curriculums so that students recognize that reading is not a subject. It's a skill that helps me get to yeah. understanding. It's, a, it's, it's not a talent that mm-hmm. some have and some don't have, but it's something I can learn to do so that I can mm-hmm. learn more. And I think it's also important to show where this lazy thinking is on both sides of an issue. And I also think it's important to show uh, the false stories that happen across a broad spectrum in Mm -hmm. a topic so that when I do present something that I have fact-checked, People recognize that I am not using lazy thinking myself on either end because I am willing to take a hard look at something that affirms my own biases and my own preconceived notions. I fact check those two. I want to find something that is true. Right. And I think they're right that right now is the time that we need to start making this shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the shift has to come um, in our classrooms. I think that, and I would disagree with you on the one point, I want people to believe that I have fact-checked. But I also then want them to inspect what they expect. Yes. Right? Because I think That's that true. can also lead to lazy thinking is if, well, I know Mrs. Huff. Miss Huff will always fact-check so I can believe whatever Miss Huff says. I can believe a librarian. You can, but you should still <laughs> check my work. <laughs> Well, and I would believe you because I know your character and I know the effort with which you do things. So there's never a doubt in my mind that if you say something that it is true. Um, They did say here in here that 
being biased doesn't make you or anyone a bad person or a bad educator. However, failing to acknowledge those biases and how they affect the way we evaluate information puts us at a disadvantage when trying to arm students with effective media literacy skills. So I believe that in a second thing that the answer to do this is that as teachers, we need to continually staying abreast of the current research practices. Mm-hmm. We need to continually being accepting of new lesson strategies or ideas that we can implement mm-hmm. with our students. I think we need to be willing to take a risk in saying, I don't know. Uh-huh. I think we need to be willing to let kids say something that's different than our thinking and maybe have a Havrutha conversation with them so that we can mm-hmm. find an answer in the middle. I like, I don't know, let's find out together. Where could we get information on that? Mm-hmm. And let's start looking. That's a great, yeah. So I think we've come to our own answers. I do. Oh, I love how these strategies work. <laughs> I really do. I think this is so fascinating. And once again, our conversations just lead to deeper learning and deeper motivation to learn more. Thank you for doing this with me. I definitely learn and grow from talking with you every week. Oh, absolutely. So to everybody out there, if you would like to tell us your thinking and your answers, please respond on Twitter to Ed Podcasts. You can send us an email at ctechpodcasts at gmail.com. You can record your voice or you can type out a response. You can also respond to the authors and yeah. Their handles are. Yeah, in the book, they say, share your thoughts and reflections with us um, at Jennifer Lagardi. I apologize if I butchered that one, but it's J E N N I F E R L A G A R D E. And D Hudgens at D Hudgens, um, D H U D G I N S. And then they also use the hashtag fact versus fiction. And so I'm going to take some time this week and look at this hashtag and see what other people have said. Maybe we'll include some of that in our conversation as well. That would be wonderful. I think that's a great idea. I look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you.